Thank you, Angela. Let's turn to Romans 11, please. Romans chapter 11. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that thou art a wonderful God, a caring God and a God who loves us and we praise and thank you for giving us your word and we thank you for the privilege we have of being able to study your word together. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us illumination into the understanding of your word. Lord, today as we take the word of God and open it up, we pray that, Lord, you give us wisdom and understanding. May we glean from your word today that which you'd have us to learn. May we receive from you the blessing you would have us to have. You'd encourage us through your truth. I pray that, Lord, you give me wisdom as I preach today, Lord, that I might speak only that which you would have me to speak, that, Lord, that you might be exalted through this message today and that, Lord, that you'd guide our time as we study together. We'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The 1940s were a tumultuous time for the world. As you know, the Second World War was the 1940s. And for Europe especially, it was a very difficult time. One of the nations that suffered greatly during the 1940s, particularly in the early days of the 1940s, and it was a very dark time, was for the nation of England. They were dark figuratively and they were dark literally. Blackouts were all uh, the rage and they're a way of life for the nation of England with the Luftwaffe and the buzz bombs being sent and dropped upon the land. The British forces overseas were in a pitiful state. Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of the time and he was seeking to rally the war-torn country by his radio addresses and more than anything else, those magnificent speeches that he made, words that strengthened the fiber of the nation with words like, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And during that time, during the Second World War, a new song made its way into prominence in England, and the song was, There'll Always Be an England. Now, we all know England did survive the Second World War, but of course, if history was to continue indefinitely, England has no guarantee of a permanent existence. England, like all the other nations, will fade away. But you know, there is one nation that does have a guaranteed future. One nation that has a promise that it will stand forever. And that nation is the nation of Israel. And Israel could sing of a truth, there'll always be an Israel. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul reveals to us God's future plans for the nation of Israel that when accomplished will fully vindicate God's righteousness. This chapter proves to you and I that God is not finished with Israel that God has a future for that nation, that God has a plan for his people. Romans chapter 9 and 10 stress the failure of Israel. Now Romans chapter 11 addresses the fact that God has a plan for his people, that the Lord is not finished with his chosen nation. 
Consequently, you and I can know for a fact that the God that you and I worship, the God that you and I serve, is a faithful God. We have a faithful God. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is going to call five witnesses to reinforce his claim that there was a future for Israel. But before he calls the witnesses, he asks a question. And today I simply want us to look at the question and the answer found in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. The question, first of all. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Hath God cast away his people? As you look at this verse, as we look at this opening verse of chapter 11 of the book of Romans, we need to understand what it says, what it really means when he says, hath God cast away his people? What is it that's been asked here? What's the question that's been posed? Well, the word to cast away means a rejection that is complete. It's a resolve to have nothing more to do with those referred to. In other words, he's asking the question, has God decided to have nothing more to do with Israel? Has God decided, has God resolved to reject them completely? And so we need to ask, is it, teaching God in God, is it the teaching of God's word that God has finished with his people, the Jews? Now the Amal analysts, those who believe that... Uh, uh, you and I will go through the tribulation and, uh, you know, and the amillennialists believing that Christ will return after the millennial kingdom, the amillennialists would say, yes, God's finished with Israel. So too to the post-millennialists. So too any anti-Semites. They believe that God's finished with Israel. For that matter, the Ku Klux Klan and the modern Islamic teachers would also teach today that God has finally washed his hands of the nation of Israel. They would say that God has rejected his people because they rejected him. That God's rejected his people finally, completely, because of the way they rejected the Messiah, rejected his son, and God wants nothing more to do with Israel. Israel is no longer in God's focus. They're finished. And that certainly appeared to be the case not long after Paul wrote the book of Romans. As Israel was destroyed by the Roman army in AD 70, Titus went into Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple and he overthrew the nation. And Israel was scattered to the four corners of the earth. And for 2,000 years, Israel became the battleground and possession of the Gentile nations. And that fact alone, the fact that Israel was destroyed, the nation of Israel was destroyed in AD 70, scattered amongst the nations and disappeared for some 2,000 years, that fact alone could suggest that God had indeed cast away his people, that God had indeed washed his hands of the nation, that God indeed had completely and utterly decided, that's it, no more. One of those even today who believe that God has cast away his people, they hold to what is known as replacement theology. And the definition re defines replacement theology as a Christian doctrine which asserts that the new covenant through Jesus Christ supersedes the old covenant, which was made exclusively with the Jewish people. 
The basis teaching is that the church has replaced or superseded Israel and God's plan. That the church today stands as the, the, the sole people of God. That there are therefore all the promises of the Old Testament to the nation of Israel are now for the church. That every one of those promises that God gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to uh, Jacob and to Moses and David, all the covenants that God made, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, all those covenants, all those promises that God made to the nation of Israel now belong to the church because we are spiritual Israel. And while we'll never possess the land physically from Egypt to the river Euphrates, you and I are spiritual Israel. We receive all the blessings of Israel spiritually today because the church has replaced, superseded Israel. Romans chapter 11 categorically, very clearly, refutes any such teaching. This is one of the key passages in the whole of the Word of God with regard to the nation of Israel and God's plan for Israel. The promises that God made in the Old Testament, the revelation that God gave in Daniel with regard to Daniel's 70th weeks and the 70th week of Daniel being the time of Jacob's trouble, that there's a week left for Israel, the tribulation period. God's going to once again deal with his people directly. All of that, Romans chapter 11 makes it abundantly clear that God has not finished with his nation. There'll always be an Israel. But let's get back to the question in chapter 11, verse 1. Hath God cast away his people? In the Gospel of Luke, Luke, Jesus Christ prophesied the demise of Jerusalem. Go with me to Luke chapter 21, please. Luke 21. And come in to read in verse 20. This is the Lord speaking about the future and what's going to happen to Israel. In verse 20 you read, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let none of not them that are in the countries enter therein, or thereinto rather. For these be the days of vengeance, that all these things which are written may be fulfilled, but woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and the wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into the all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of Gentiles. This is the prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ gave about the nation of Israel. There was a day coming where they would indeed be uh, overthrown, that they would be under the, uh, the oppression, under the rule, the dictatorship of Gentile nations. But notice what 24 ends with. It says at the end of verse 24, it says, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of, Gentile, of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. He adds the word until. He prophesies the destruction of the nation of Israel. He prophesies the time whereby the nation of Israel will be scattered 
to the four corners of the world under Titus in AD 70, the Lord Jesus Christ prophesies the coming events and the dispersion of the nation of Israel and then he adds a vital word, until. There's an until in God's plan for Israel. One sure thing that you and I can count on, that you and I need to be sure of, but often is not understood by many different groups around the world, even today, is that God still has a plan for Israel. Yes, there is a time going to be, and even now, whereby the nation of Israel is oppressed, but it's only until. And Romans 11 makes this abundantly clear. And those of us who are in Christ, especially we Gentiles in Christ, need to be careful that we do not proudly and wrongly and ignorantly misunderstand the vital truth. God loves Israel. God has not finished with Israel. God will keep his promises to Israel. For you know, God always keeps his promises. This is the assurance. Romans chapter 11 is such a powerful assurance, not just to Israel, but to you and I. God keeps his promises. Paul knew this. Paul knew that God had not finished with Israel, so he asked the question, hath God cast away his people? And having asked the question, he then gives the answer. He says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. God forbid. You know, that's the short answer to his question. The long answer to the question is the rest of Romans chapter 11. And it's summarized for us in verse 25. Drop down to verse 25, because verse 25 gives us the summarization of everything that he's going to say in Romans chapter 11 with regards to the nation of Israel. And the answer to the question, Hath God cast away Israel? God forbid. And notice what he says in verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. See, blindness has happened in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Isn't that what Christ predicted in Luke 21, verse 20 through 24? That Israel would be put aside, trodden down by the Gentiles. Look in verse 24 of Luke 21 again. It says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. Trodden down of the Gentiles until... Until when? Until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Romans 11... 25, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. We're now living in the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles were predicted throughout the Old Testament prophecy. Daniel predicted a time of the Gentiles. Christ predicted the time of the Gentiles from the moment that Israel was dispersed to the nations, the four winds of the earth, 
from that time until the time that Jesus Christ calls the church home in the rapture. And indeed, throughout the tribulation period until the second coming of Christ, when he stands upon the man of olives and issues in the millennial kingdom, this is the time of the Gentiles. And the nation of Israel will be under the time of the Gentiles until, God says, that time will end. There is an until for Israel. And we're living in the until. The time in which we now dwell is that until right now. Even though in the last 70 years Israel has resurfaced as a nation again. Jerusalem to this day is still trodden down by Gentiles. It still has an Arab quarter. It is still has Gentile cathedrals dotted throughout the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. The Temple Mount is a holy place for the sons of Ishmael. The Dome of the Rock is situated on top of the Temple Mount, the place where God's temple should reside, is now residing the Islamic Temple. But remember this, it's only until. Until God is ready to restore His nation, until God is ready to restore His people and keep His promises, Israel is under Gentile domination. We're in the time of the Gentiles. But beloved, this truth is sure. God has not cast away his people forever. Yes, he is chastening them right now by setting them aside, by taking his gospel to the Gentiles. He is making them jealous. That's what he says in verse 11 of this chapter. Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 11, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation was come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. God is chastening his people right now. He is bringing them to a place whereby they will call upon him. The tribulation is all about bringing them to their knees so they'll cry out to God and they will look upon him whom they're pierced and they will glorify their Savior, their Messiah when he returns to earth. God has chastened them by scattering them and making them strangers in other lands just as Moses had prophesied back in Deuteronomy 32. Go with me to Deuteronomy 32 please. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 20. We read, And and he said, I will hide my face from them, and I'll see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger, with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people, that's with the Gentiles. I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, once again, the Gentiles. For a fear is kindled in mine anger, uh, sorry, a fire is kindled in my anger, and shall burn under the lowest hell, and consume the earth with her increase. 
and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap mischiefs upon them. I will spend my arrows upon them. They shall be burnt with hunger and devour with burning heat and with bitter destruction. I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them with the poison of serpents in the, in the dust. The sword without and the terror within shall destroy both the young men and the virgin, the suckling also with the man of gray hairs. I said I will scatter them into, the cor into, the cor into corners. I will make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. That's what God prophesied back in Deuteronomy 32, and that's exactly what happened in AD 70. God caused his wrath to fall upon the nation of Israel, and they were scattered. They were forgotten. And the nation of Israel was forgotten until 1948. When God started to gather from the four corners of the world, his people back to Israel. And God to this day is still calling his people back to Israel. People are still moving from all over the world back into the nation of Israel, back into Jerusalem and the other parts, ready for the day when the times of the Gentiles will end. And God will fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel and the millennial kingdom, all the promises. The promise of the land and all the covenants will be ultimately fulfilled. The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled in its entirety as God establishes the millennial kingdom and blesses his people. See, Romans 11.1, 1, Paul makes it clear that this judgment is not the end. The phrase, God forbid, here in Revelation, uh, sorry, Revelation's Wednesday night. Here in Romans chapter 11 and verse 1, the phrase God forbid can be translated by no means. Or such a thing is unthinkable. You know, like many of the other quotations and, and other questions rather that Paul has posed here in Romans, the structure underlying the question in the Greek implies the answer is a strong no. Hath God cast away his people? No. And the Greek is the most forceful way that you can answer a question. Pastor Mitchell put it this way, with that phrase, he is expressing the idea that the question itself is so absurd that it shouldn't even be asked. The question is so absurd, it should not even be asked. It's a dumb question, is what Paul is saying. If you know your Bible, if you know the prophetic word, if you know what God has taught, you know that God has not done away with Israel permanently. It is a question that should never be asked. You see, the truth is that God cho has chosen Israel as his covenant people. And he's entered into a relationship with them based upon that covenant, and that covenant can never be destroyed. 1 Samuel, chapter 12, please. 1 Samuel, chapter 12, and verse 22. 1 Samuel 12, 22. It says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Here's God's promise to Israel. God will not forsake his people 
for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you his people. Samuel reminds the nation of Israel that God loves them. He also reminds Israel that God's favor towards them was not prompted by any good they did. God's favor to Israel is not prompted by any good they would do. And God's favor to Israel is not prompted by any favor or any, any uh, uh, good that they would accomplish in their lifetime or even promise to do. The reason why God shows favor to the nation of Israel is for his great name's sake, according to 1 Samuel 12.22. And because it pleased the Lord to do so. God is going to show favor to Israel not because of who Israel is, not because of their behavior, not because of their obedience, not because of anything else. God will show favor to Israel because it's according to his name and it pleases him to do so. You see, the reasons for God keeping his promises, God keeping his covenant with Israel, is found in God himself, not in Israel. They were found in God's faithfulness, not in God's people. If the nation of Israel would be reliant upon their faithfulness to their God for God keeping his covenants, the covenants would never be kept. Many of the God's covenants with Israel are unconditional covenants. The Abrahamic covenant in particular is an unconditional covenant. God said, I will do this to the seed of Abraham, and it's not dependent upon anything Israel does. Now, the Mosaic Covenant has some conditions upon it, but the Abrahamic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, for the most part, are unconditional covenants. God says, I'll do this, and it's not dependent upon what Israel does or does not do. And the same is true for you and I. You know, the reason why God keeps his promises to us is not found in ourselves. Do you know why God keeps his promises? Because God is a faithful God. We can count on him to do what he's promised to do even when you and I fail him because he is faithful. The reason why you and I will get to heaven is not because of anything you and I do. We are kept by the power of God. It's the promise of God, the character of God, the name of God, the will of God that determines that all those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ shall be saved and shall be glorified. It's not dependent upon us. No matter what our situation, no matter what we're going through, God's will will always be accomplished. God will remain faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. Look at 2 Timothy, please. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. If we believe not, yet 
he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Isn't that a great verse? Even if we believe not, he abideth faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. Once God has made a promise, God will keep that promise. It's his character. It's his being. God is a faithful God. He has to keep his promises. Somebody said God's faithfulness will never fail, even though the faith of his people fails. And Romans chapter 11 and verse 1, and Romans chapter 11 in general, reminds us that Israel's failures did not spell the end. Their rejection by God was not final because God is faithful. I mean, the nation of Israel may well be back in Israel today, but they're in unbelief. The vast majority of Israelites today do not believe in Jesus Christ. They still reject their Messiah. They still are in unbelief. For the vast majority of Israelites, they're even secular Jews. They don't even worship God in the old-fashioned way. Israel is a secular nation. Israel is an unbelief today. And yet God has a mighty promise for those peoples, that nation. And it's not dependent upon them. It's not dependent upon their faithfulness. It's dependent upon God and His character, His faithfulness. In Romans chapter 9 through 11 God uses the nation of Israel to illustrate to you and I that he is a faithful God, even when we as people are fickle. You know, even though we sin against him, God still loves us. And even though the nation of Israel sinned against their God and rejected him, God has promised to restore them because he's faithful. You know, when we look at God's relationship to Israel, we can be sure that our God is a faithful God. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, please. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That's a glorious truth, beloved. This is God's promise to you and I. The good work he began in us is salvation. And God says that the very thing that he has done, the good work that began in us, he will perform until the day of salvation. Those of us who are justified, God will also glorify. That's Romans 8. What about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24? 1 Thessalonians 5:24. Here's another great promise to you and I as believers. Faithful is he that calleth you, who will also do it. God will perform that which he's called us to. God will indeed perform it. You know, there's some general things that God has promised for all believers. Do you know that God has promised that every one of us who are saved will one day be like Christ? And he that's... As it says there in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he that calleth you shall also perform it. We've been called to be conformed to the image of his Son, and we will be 
in the image of the Son. First John tells us that, that we know not what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. These are God's promises to you and I. These promises, these his promises are for those of us who know the Savior are guaranteed. We ought to take comfort in the thought that the Lord does not cast off his people because they have failures and imperfections. Israel stands as a beacon and a testimony to who God is. You know, God knows who we are. And he accepts you and I with all of our blemishes and all of our defects and saves us by faith, by grace through faith. And once we're saved, God still knows us. He knows our blemishes, he knows our defects, and he still loves us, and he will never, ever put us away. You know, God's promise of salvation is for eternity. Not because of who we are, but because our salvation rests in who God is. Our salvation rests in God's faithfulness. Look in John chapter 10. This is a passage we all know well, but John chapter 10 and verse 27. says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Here is a great passage on the fact that our salvation is eternal, and it can never, ever be taken away from us. He gives unto us eternal life. We shall never perish. We'll never be plucked out of his hand. Never plucked out of the Father's hand. Just in case we're not sure what he meant by never perish. You know, in case you not, don't understand the word eternal life, he uses the word never perish. In case you don't understand what that means, you're in the Father, in his hand. And if you don't understand that, well, his hand's in the Father's hand. In other words, you and I cannot lose our salvation. And that's not dependent upon us. Just like Israel, all the promises of God to Israel will be fulfilled, not because of who Israel is, but because of who God is. And our salvation is secure, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. One commentator said this, He knew what we were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled, yet he loved us. He knows what we will be after conversion, weak, erring and frail, yet he loves us. He has undertaken to save us, notwithstanding all our shortcomings, and what he has undertaken, he will carry through. The truth is our God is faithful. His promises cannot fail. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. <laughs> you love that verse? The promises of God are yea, and amen. <laughs> They're guaranteed. They will come to pass. Why? 
because they're unto the glory of God by us. By God keeping his promises to you and I, they bring glory to him. All of his promises are yea, and all of his promises are amen. Because that brings glory to God, and God wants to get the glory. Now the truth is, God's promises for Israel could, could fail. Rather, if, the truth is, if God's promises for Israel could fail, that would mean that all of God's promises could fail. But God can be trusted, beloved, to keep his promises. For our God is a faithful God. Lamentations. Lamentations. Just before the book of Ezekiel. Lamentations chapter 3. These verses we all know well. Verse 21. Lamentations 3, 21. Yes, I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. It's because of his mercies that we're not consumed. His compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. We need to remember always that our God is a faithful God. He has promised in Hebrews 13 that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And Romans chapter 11 tells us that God never forgets his promises. He's a covenant keeping God. Whatever God has promised God will perform. God is a faithful God. He's faithful and will fulfill His covenant promises just as He promised. God's promises cannot fail and therefore God cannot, finish, cannot have finished with Israel because God made some unconditional promises to the nation of Israel and God will, God must keep his promises. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. That's a silly question. Because the answer is no, he hasn't. God will fulfill his promises. When we go on to consider Romans chapter 11 and look at the seven witnesses that Paul calls to demonstrate, to reinforce what he's just said in verse 1. When we consider God's promise in Israel, we should be comforted in the sure knowledge that God has not finished with Israel. And that knowledge should remind us of the great faithfulness of our God. You need to remember, beloved, that according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God are in Him are yea and amen. Promises of God are guaranteed to be fulfilled. There is no fickleness with God. While you and I may well be fickle and you and I may well fail our God, God is never fickle. There's no abandoning of His gracious intentions. Truly great is the Lord 
and greatly to be praised. Truly great is thy faithfulness. Great is the faithfulness of our God. Let's rest today in the great assurance that God always keeps his promises. That our God is a faithful God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you today that your word speaks so abundantly to us that you are a faithful God. Your promises, Father God, are guaranteed. Not because of who we are, not because of what we do, but because of who you are. That all the promises of God are yea and amen. And to that we do indeed say amen. Father, we thank you that great is thy faithfulness. We thank you, Father God, that you will keep your promises to Israel. And Lord, we thank you for the assurance that that makes to us that you will keep your promises to us. Encourage us through your word this day, we pray. And bless now as we depart. In Jesus' name, amen.